Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. All right. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. Thank you so much again for tuning in. And so today I'll be your host, Joshua, and we have a special guest, Colin Campbell. And so he is a writer and director for theater and film. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Seraglio, a short film he wrote and directed with his wife, Gail Lerner. He has taught theater and or filming at several different universities and also to incarcerated youth through the Unusual Suspects. His one-person show titled Grief, a one-man shit show, premiered at the Hollywood Fringe Festival, where it won a Best for Broadwater Award. He recently wrote the book Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. So thank you, Colin, so much for coming on the podcast and willing to share a little bit of your journey and story with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And so I was wondering if you'd just talk a little bit about the profound loss that you have suffered with the death of your two children and really a process on, you know, how you here today. Yeah, it's um, so uh, we were hit by a drunken and high driver uh, and she was going 90 miles an hour and didn't didn't touch the brakes. She was so drunk and high, she never even touched the brakes. So she was at full speed and Ruby and Hart, my two teenage children were in the back seat and, and they were both killed. And that was June 12th, 2019, which is a little over four years now. And yeah, how am I here is a great question. There's so much despair and really terror in the early days, terror at the, at the idea of having to live without my kids. Uh, and every day I'm hit with that feeling of like, how, how, how can I live without them? Uh, I'll never see them again. And they were everything to me. So it's been a hard, hard road, but I feel like I've found ways of getting back in touch with meaning and purpose, you know, and trying to stay alive in this world, you know, and not be, not be just lost in the past in a way, you know, yearning for the past. Uh, those yearnings come up, but I try to stay present. And so you were actually in the car too. You were the one driving. I was driving, and my wife was was in, was sitting with me in the front seat, and we were both knocked unconscious. And she had broken ribs and a cracked sternum and serious whiplash, and I had cracked ribs. And but we survived. We survived. Do you did you ever in in your journey ask like the why? Like why am I still alive? You know, I haven't really. Um, I don't believe in in a, in a god in that sense that, that uh, you know some some someone that's in charge and making decisions. Uh, so I, I believe sort of in the more spiritual, like uh, you know, the power of love. I guess or the, we're all interconnected through love. Um, that's sort of my spirituality. So I never really thought there was a, a reason other than this woman got drunk and high and got behind the wheel. That's the why um, for me. Yeah. And then what was it like to I guess just come out of that? that situation and have to go home and you have to recover too mm -hmm. Yeah. At, at the same time as you're grieving. And I guess could you a little more detail on, on that and like what was going through mm. your mind? Yeah. Well, returning home was 
was terrifying. And I didn't really know how terrifying grief was. Uh, you know, I just thought, oh, you're sad, you know, obviously. But actually, in the early days, and just what you said, like, coming back home from the hospital, it's just Gail and I alone in the car, and we're stepping into an empty house. And it was awful. It was like, I don't want to, I don't want to step into this house. You know, how can I be here without Ruby and Hart? So there was just a lot of, of fear in those early days. And also fear that I would lose my mind, that, that I would go mad, that if I started weeping, I would never stop. Uh, I would just sort of, I, I don't know, just go crazy. That's what it sort of felt like. Because it does feel like that, you know, letting go and, and, and really weeping, really keening. It feels, you feel out of control, but it does stop. I learned <laughs> that it stops and it's okay. It's okay to, you know, quote unquote, lose it and just weep. You'll, uh, your body will just, <laughs> it's, it's, it subsides. The crying subsides. And in terms of our physical injuries, what was interesting was after about a month, they were all gone. So uh, my wife had, had horrible bruises all across her chest from the seatbelt. And at first it was, it was so painful that uh, we had shirts printed up. So at the funeral, we had, we had friends who wore shirts that said, don't hug Gail, hug me. Because people wanted to hug us, right? Uh, but she was, she was in too much pain. You know, her, she had broken ribs. You can't hug somebody with broken ribs. Um, so when we started to heal from those wounds, it actually was, was kind of terrible. Because it made even less sense. You know, like it, it, the, our wounds almost helped us. Like, yeah, we were in a car crash. And when those wounds went away, we're like, we're healthy and our kids are gone. How is this possible? You know, uh, that's sort of the disbelief, the denial is very, very hard. Even to this day, it's, it's hard for me to totally believe they're gone and this is real life. You know what I mean? Uh, there's definitely a part of me that's still like, this can't be true. Well, it's not something you ever think would ever happen to you, right? You've, you kind of yeah. hear it like in the news here and there, but then when it actually happens, you're like, how is this? Like, you just, you just can't make sense. And I think it's interesting what you mm -hmm. said about letting go and actually feeling the emotions of deep despair and to have those cries. Mm -hmm. I remember I never really cried before my dad died. <laughs> and so um, I found it very difficult and fearful, as you're saying, to let go or to feel those feels or to just like to even just the tear ducts to like work the way they're supposed to work. But yeah, so I could really um, have that understanding of, of kind of what you're saying and just like how the culture itself doesn't promote that. And you're almost learning it like in a crash course the first yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I remember I remember Gail and I, we, we, we thought the other person was crying more and we weren't crying enough. It, it's so strange, like, you know, tears and guilt and when they flow and don't flow. And I think it can be very, um, it can be very uh, detrimental or make us think, you know, terrible thoughts about ourselves. Why aren't we crying? <laughs> and then why, why, how can I stop crying? You know, it's never like, oh, I've cried the right amount. <laughs> that never feels that way. It always feels like something's wrong with us. Because what you said, we don't really talk about it. It's not really um, a, a socially acceptable thing to do, weep, you know? Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. And I'm, I'm curious, like, as you were figuring out what grief was, because as you said, like, we don't talk about it. Where did you get your information from? Were you like asking friends? Like, were you reading books? Like, how how was that process for you to try to figure out that you weren't crazy, right? Because that was your concern mm -hmm. when you're yeah. feeling this stuff. Yeah, uh, I did read a lot of books, and some of them were very helpful early on. So, uh, "Bearing the Unbearable" by Dr. Joanne Cacciatore was really helpful to us in very early grief. Acquaintance of ours 
had lost her son three years earlier, I think, in a boating accident. And she recommended we get this book and we read it. And it, it sort of started us on the path of what I call active grieving, like embracing our grief, like not trying to bottle it up or push it away. Just like, yes, we are grieving. And I actually mailed copies of it to my entire family. I was just to give them like a heads up. <laughs> we're going to grieve Ruby and Hart. We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about grief. We're going we're gonna to grieve. <laughs> so that was very helpful. But what was in a way that most helpful was uh, the Jewish traditions of grieving and mourning, because I'm not Jewish, but my wife is Jewish, and we raised Ruby and Hart as Jews. Uh, so they were bar and bat mitzvah. We were active members of our temple. And the Jewish tradition of mourning, it's really uh, requires the griever to engage with their grief in public. So, you know, for example, you, you sit shiva. Uh, which means for the first week after the funeral, every night people come to your house. A lot of people come to your house <laughs> and sit with you. And so you're in public in these fresh, fresh days of grief, right when you think you don't want to be in public, <laughs> you know, but you are. And I found that was so helpful to be able to talk about my grief and about Ruby and Hart to other people, just to literally process it. And then the Jewish tradition asks that you say the mourner's Kaddish every day for the first year after the death of a loved one, but you can't say it alone. You have to be with at least nine other people as you say this prayer, this mourner's prayer. And what's so amazing about that is like saying that mourner's prayer, you're probably going to cry. <laughs> and here you are, they're saying, don't do it alone. Do it with nine, at least nine other people with you who are witnessing your grief. It's such an extraordinary gift to the griever, that concept of don't grieve alone, you know. That's a beautiful process. I wonder, I was curious about how it starts, you know, like, because there's a reason why it <laughs> continues on because it must be useful and there must be a lot of kernels of truth in there that yeah. other, I know you can see it in other kind of cultures too and religions where they have these moments where you're, you're making people in your community witness your grief but you're also being supported by those who are witnessing yeah. at the same time and to said not be alone and i think that's i think one of the issues in our culture really a lot of people do grieve alone they mm -hmm. don't have that that support and or those those rituals to be able to rely on because yeah. i think in, if people don't have that they they go to the default, which is either avoidance. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, right. Like, and it's, they, it's hard to sit with someone who's grieving. Like, so for those not eight other people that are going to be witnessing that person recite that prayer and, and grieve, well, that's hard. It's difficult. Like, yeah. to be able to do that, like, we're not taught how to sit with someone suffering and we're never so, because we're not taught just how to sit with our own. And mm -hmm. so I think there's a lot of truth to there and a lot of beauty in that tradition. Yeah. Is, that what, is that what you see too when you sort of look at that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that these Jewish rituals of mourning literally taught me how to grieve, what it is to grieve. So I really thought about it a lot because, yeah, I, I you know, I don't believe in God. So I'm not, I'm coming at it from uh, not like we're saying these prayers for God. We're saying these prayers for us. And so I really just thought about for me what it, what all these things meant. And it was really powerful. The idea that, that we don't just go off in a corner and feel sad that we actually have to process our grief. We have to process it by talking about it, by literally finding the words. Hence my book. <laughs> because I think we, we need that. It's such an incomprehensible thing. How do I live life without, how do I even understand life without Ruby and Hart? And I really feel like I benefited from talking about them to my community. 
And so even though you're not Jewish, did you partake in those, I guess, rituals yourself and, and oh, say, yes. oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you started feeling that it was, did you feel it was uncomfortable at first? Uh, well, I was in so much discomfort <laughs> that those sort of socially awkward moments didn't feel so awkward because I was in such, yeah, such overwhelming discomfort. It was like, yeah, sure, I, this feels a little awkward, but <laughs> so what? You know what I mean? That's kind of what my attitude was. And I think it helped me because I developed this thing that I call a grief spiel. And I write about it in the book, which I think was a really helpful tool. A lot of people, they were scared to come visit Gail and I because they didn't know what to say. They thought maybe they had to say something to, to fix our grief somehow, and they couldn't, <laughs> right? So, and they were worried that anything they said would be offensive. Like even like, hi, how are you? They were scared, like, how am I? How do you think I am? My kids were just murdered, you know? So, or they were scared if they even mentioned Ruby and Hart, I would, I would lose it. I would be triggered. And so, because of Shiva, I realized I needed to talk about Ruby and Hart. So, so I developed this, this grief spiel where Gail and I would pull people aside one, on, one at a time and tell them, look, here's the deal. Here's the spiel, which is we need to talk about Ruby and Hart. We need to talk about our grief. We can talk about other things for a little bit, but then the conversation has to circle back to our grief because we're in acute pain right now. And our kids were just killed like a week ago. We need to talk about this. <laughs> and it was such a relief to them because they didn't know what to say. And, and we were able to give them ground rules of how to talk to us. And, and I think it was socially awkward to do that, right? To say to somebody, okay, here's the deal. If you want to talk to me, here's how you talk to me. You know what I mean? But as I said, uh, it was in so, I was in so much discomfort that that little extra added <laughs> bonus of social awkwardness was not a big deal. I think it took, it was nice that you noticed that people were uncomfortable and found a way to make them more comfortable to be able to, to share in the space with your grief. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of times people can get just angry at other people yeah. for not being there, but you've really found a way to understand and have compassion for where they are coming from and to find a way to really bridge that for them. And, you know, mm -hmm. we don't want, like, you're already grieving. You're the one that's actually <laughs> going through the hard thing, but you're still like understanding and thinking about how this is, process is working. So that's really actually a really helpful tip. And is that something that you recommend other people do within yeah. their family and friends? I think absolutely. And I think the, the beauty of it is that it allows the mourner to say what they need. So I'm, I'm not telling the mourner what they need. I'm saying you, the mourner, tell your community what, what you need. And the need changes, you know, it changes, it can change day to day what, what I need. So, so in the very beginning, Part of my grief spiel was, I don't care about your loss <laughs> right now. I don't want to hear about your cousin that died 10 years ago or your dad who died at the age of 70. Like <laughs> right now, I, I can't, I can't care about those griefs because my kids were just killed. But then as time went by and I moved out of acute grief, I actually became more empathetic towards other people's losses. And I wanted to hear about their cousin who died 10 years ago or their father who died of old age. You know, it changed and it was nice to have that sort of tool of like, now I can tell people, yes, tell me, tell me about your losses. I, and I, I can understand, I understand grief now in a new way uh, with a lot more compassion and empathy. That's interesting. And yeah, that makes total sense. It's like in the, in the initial stages, it's you, you just want to share, you just want to be, and you want people to be with you to yeah. share and not take the the focus off of to something else. Yeah. Um, and, and, and people thought sometimes I think like they were trying to relate to me, like, you know, oh, I, I, 
I don't have a loss like that, but my cousin did die. And then they talk about their cousin for a while. I'm like, ah, I, I, I can't talk about your dead cousin. I'm so sorry. Now I can. <laughs> but yeah, in early grief, no, it's, it's very selfish grief. I think it needs to be early, yeah, I, early grief. I agree. I agree. I think it's a, it's a really great point. And I'm curious, other changes you saw from the initial stages to maybe a couple of years later in the process of grief. Because I think that you're really well in articulating some of these processes, and which is probably why you wrote the book also. <laughs> um, but I'm just curious what some other things you saw within your own process. Yeah, I think I went through a series of stages with my identity. So, so I, my identity was really wrapped up in being Ruby and Hart's dad when they were alive. That's really who I thought of myself as, you know, sure, I was a, a husband and a son and a brother and friend and, and a teacher and a, a filmmaker and a theater artist. But really, I was Ruby and Hart's dad. And so when they were killed, it was very hard for me to even embrace the idea that I was the father of two dead kids now. That was very hard. But then after a while, I sort of, I did embrace it. It was important to me. Um, you know, I sort of almost clung to that identity. I'm the father of two kids who were killed. And that became my central identity. And now I've kind of moved away from that. So when I meet people now, I have other things going on in my life. And that was hard. That was hard. Each stage was hard to let go of the other one, you know? So it was hard for me to let go of, you know, telling people right away, hi, I'm Colin. My kids were killed, you know? Um, so when I, when I was teaching, uh, well, I still teach, but, when, but back then I was teaching and I would tell my students on the first day of class that I was, I was in grief, my kids were killed because it was so important to me. It felt like a, a, a white elephant or it felt like I was in denial if I didn't say anything, you know? felt wrong. And now I've, I'm in a different place. I don't need to tell people right away. But after a while, it does still feel weird if I don't tell people, you know, if it goes on for a while, and nobody knows, new people that met me don't know this about me, it still feels weird, like I need to tell you this. <laughs> that, so that's one sort of change. And I think really my capacity to talk about other things is I already touched on this, but the idea that, that I have more bandwidth now for other things in life. You mentioned like to like you went back to work, you had to go back to work, right? And then mm -hmm. you also said doing the theater and the film. What was that process like for you to because I now you have this one man show, yes. one person show. And so was that like how did you get there? Like to say, like, I need to do this in a different way. Because you wrote a book and you're doing this theater show and you, it seems like you continually are trying to, I guess, increase the grief literacy of the world. Is it? <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, I, I, my initial uh, title for my book was Teach Grief. And I think that, that points to what you're saying, like the idea of grief literacy. I think so many people, myself included, before I lost Ruby and Hart, don't really know how to talk about grief, don't really understand how to support somebody in grief and don't feel comfortable talking about it. There's so much discomfort around grief. And I think it adds to the isolation of people in grief. Uh, and we'll all grieve. We'll all lose somebody we love. That's kind of the deal. You know, hopefully we lose them because they've lived a full life and they and they die of old age. And But even so, it's still a loss. <laughs> you know, they're still dying. You're going to lose people you love if you love anybody. And hopefully you do love people, even though you're going to lose them. It's worth the risk. But, um, or worth the pain. But, I feel like a lot of people, they think they're supposed to fix grief. You're supposed to say something that's going to make the other person feel better. Like, take away their pain. Stop feeling the pain. And I really want, if I'm on a mission in life, it's to, like, tell people, like, pain is okay. It's okay that I'm in pain. Let me be in pain because I lost people that I love. So, I, sh I should be in pain. That's all right, you know. Don't try and fix my pain by saying something 
Because anytime you're trying to fix somebody's pain, it's going to come off offensive, right? Because it's, it's you're trying to minimize the pain. Like, don't feel so bad, you know, right? They were just your kids. Or I, I don't know what you know what I mean. You could have more kids, or you know, you could marry somebody else. Or, you know, at least at least you had this much life with them. Anytime you say that, you're ultimately telling somebody to stop feeling bad, stop feeling the pain, right? And uh, and that's going to rub most grievers wrong. That's such a great point. Yeah, because you're really, yeah, you're, you're saying, I am, well, the person say, I'm uncomfortable with your pain. I want to change it. So mm-hmm. I'm more comfortable. So it has nothing to do with the person grieving. It's all about you. And yeah. You're trying to switch that script and say, no, like they need to be in that. You're just uncomfortable. So what can you do to make yourself more comfortable? Because it's an aspect of life. Like this is something that you're going to encounter with your friends, family, children, with the death of people and pets all the time. Yeah. And it's especially with the pandemic, it really came to the surface on how many people were just even dying from COVID. But like just in general, how many people die per year is astronomical. And it's just really how can we get more comfortable with that so people don't have to have such a, a hard journey like you did or don't have to teach people as they're grieving themselves to make the, the journey a little bit more easier. Yeah, yeah. And so what is this uh, one person show about? <laughs> I'm really curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I started writing it right away, like just a few days after the funeral, I began writing this the solo show. And at first I thought it was like stand up, like a stand, like the darkest stand up you've ever seen. That was kind of a, you know, I had a lot of anger, right? <laughs> My kids were killed by a drunk driver. I was, I had a lot of anger that I didn't know what to do with. And so I think writing out this very dark, darkly comedic piece, because Ruby and Hart loved comedy. They were very funny, funny, funny kids. My wife is a professional comedy writer. <laughs> she writes uh, for television comedies for the past 25 years. So, um, so our household was appreciated a good joke, put it that way. Um, and so, and we like dark jokes. And so, this show was very darkly comedic and it allowed me to get out some of that anger. And then I showed it to my wife early on, just like a couple pages worth. And she's like, oh, I love this, keep writing. So, I kept writing and it slowly evolved into a full-length piece of theater. So, it's not stand-up. It's not a stand-up routine. But it is a piece of theater. And then I started, I perform. I wanted to perform it, but then COVID happened and, and everything, all the theater shut down. So, I was actually about to perform it on a, on a Thursday. I was just going to do like, just for invited, I invited like 50 friends to come see it, you know. And then on Tuesday, I had to call them all and say, it's canceled because of COVID <laughs> two days before I was going to do it. And that was a good thing for me because it was too raw. Back then, I, I was only like, well, this was 20, March 2020, so whatever, seven months after the crash. The play was, was all written, so the whole thing was done. So, it was all early grief, and uh, it would have been painful to sit through <laughs> because I would have broken down. Uh, so, so, I put a pause on it because of COVID, and then I turned to writing the book instead. So, I wrote a book, and then I finished the book, and then COVID theater, you know, bands lifted. And I performed my show out here in Los Angeles for the Hollywood Fringe Festival. And then I took it to New York for a month. I did a month-long run in New York this past March and April. And both went really well. It was a, it's an interesting show because it's very dark and angry, but comedically angry. It starts off almost like selfish, I think, or, or I'm just sort of, I'm just mad at everybody else, basically, in the world. And then through the course of the show, me, my character, starts to empathize with other losses and starts to appreciate other grief and starts to realize, oh, you know, grief is grief and, and we're all in pain and, and let's honor that instead of like comparing loss or 
uh, or being angry at other people for how they're grieving. So I think it ends on a very nice, uplifting place. And so audience members really responded, especially people who've lost loved ones recently. So that was really nice. And so you performed this yourself. Yeah, yeah, I performed it, right. And I, and I don't identify as an actor. Um, I acted in, in college and, and in graduate school. I went to graduate school for theater directing. So I would often act for other directors, but I don't identify as an actor. So I was kind of acting because I was playing myself in, in early grief. So if I were to write a, a solo show now, I wouldn't have written that show. It, it's, it's, it's way too angry. <laughs> um, but it was nice for me to be able to touch that. That's place. It feels very real and honest. I wanted to really honor that that early grief place. And you, you keep speaking about anger. It was like mm-hmm. a very big emotion. How did you process anger? Well, I, I've never been very comfortable with anger. I've always been like, I was a guy that would, I would make a joke, you know, instead of feeling the anger, I would like put it away by making some self-disparaging comment or something. I, I feel like when I'm angry, I'm out of control and it's scary to me. And so I felt a lot of out of controlness. And I think writing was how I processed it and got it out, you know, channeled it into something else. So I would write in a journal. So I had a journal for the first year after the crash. And my wife and I, we had this thing that we entertained each other with what we called uh, our hate du jour, which is basically we would latch on to somebody who, who did us wrong somehow, like whatever it is, like, you know, cut us off in the grocery store or, or, or looked at us with too much pity, you know, <laughs> or, or just said something not even offensive, but just kind of like missing the mark. And then we would go off on that person, not, 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 not in person, but in, in the privacy of our home, <laughs> uh, or we would journal about it. And then we'd, we'd tell each other, Gail and I would tell each other our hate du jours and entertain each other with our, our sort of our burn book <laughs> of grief. So that was one way we handled it. Another way that I handled, which is maybe even uh, even more healthy, is I, I, I discovered that kindness is an antidote to rage. That if I acted kind towards somebody, anybody, I would feel a little less rage at the universe. So, uh, so for example, if I was driving my car and somebody wanted to, you know, enter the lane, and I, I paused and waved them in, and they would, you know, cut in front of me and give me a little wave, I just felt a little less anger at the universe, you know? That's very interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Do, yeah. You, do you ever wonder why that is? Like why? Well, I, I kind of, I put it at, at like, it's sort of an, an acting um, motto, like uh, fake it with confidence. So if you're doing improvisation, if you're improvising a scene and you don't know what your character's supposed to be doing now because you're improvising it, if you just act like you know what you're doing, <laughs> you come off like you know what you're doing and then you know what you're doing. Like it's like, it's like fake it till you make it kind of idea. So that's what I think is sort of happening is like, I'm acting kind. So then I start to feel kind, <laughs> you know, and then I start to be kind because I'm actually doing something nice. <laughs> so it's, it's a little of that, I think. And then I just think in general, the concept kindness as an antidote to rage is kind of nice. We all just act a little kinder towards ourselves and the universe. Things will be better. No, that's why I was really struck by that. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I never really thought about it in that way. Hmm. You know, like the, the the power of acts of kindness. A lot of times we do it and we don't realize what it's actually doing for us. Yeah. But like if we're dealing with some stuff, anger, even um, do you think it, it, deal, it also works with like other emotions? Like if you're sad and acting kind, it would. Oh. Or is it just like rage or anger? Well, I don't know. But when you said that, it made me think 
if if you're act if you're sad, can you do something that's fun? Can, and we're like like is a fun activity an antidote to sadness? Like even if you don't feel like it, you're just doing something. We had this thing, uh, Ruby Hart and Gail and I. We <laughs> I took Ruby and Hart to to Scotland. So Campbell, my last name is Campbell, so so I'm Scottish ancestry, and we got this little um, a bagpipe toy that you stick on the fridge, and if you push it, it plays a little bit of bagpipe music. And we had a rule in our household that if anybody pushed that button, we all had to do a ridiculous little dance. So we'd dance in the kitchen, we'd, we'd link arms and dance around to this ridiculous, you know, bagpipes. It's not the greatest instrument in the world, no offense to Scottish people, but um, it's kind of silly. And so we pushed this button and we dance in the kitchen together. That's where it was. And our rule was if we were in a fight, if we were feeling really bad and somebody pushed that button, you had to dance. It didn't matter if you were angry or feeling bad. And it lifts your spirit. Doing a ridiculous dance, you, you start to feel better. You just have, you have to, you have to, you have to take it in. It's so silly. It has to cheer you up, you know? So, so yeah, I think doing something silly and goofy is an antidote to sadness. That's so interesting. I like that. It's probably why the, the benefit of kids too, like how they can really uplift mm. your mood because they just, they play like all the time and yeah. um, they act silly all the time. And you're just like, <laughs> what? Like, okay. I'm right. curious. I'm curious. Um, did you ever or your wife press that button during that first three years after loss? Yeah, we did. We did. Um, did you do a silly dance or did we you? did a silly dance uh, and we cried as we danced, you know, so it, it's not like it like it didn't solve us. But, but yeah, we, we, we laughed. We laughed and cried. Yeah. 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 Wow. And so writing your book, um, is there anything else you want to want to say about that? And maybe the impact mm. you've seen have on maybe other people um, that yeah. have read it? Yeah. Yeah. So I get, I get notes every couple of days from somebody, somebody that's read my book, reaches out to me through Instagram or email and, uh, and just tells me how, how meaningful it is, how much that my book has helped them. And it's so amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing to get these notes and they're tough notes, right? Because they also share their loss. They share the person they lost uh, and how they lost them. And so it feels kind of sacred to receive that information, you know, but it's so gratifying to know that, that my words have helped somebody. It's such a beautiful thing. It means so much to me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, you know, I wrote the book. I didn't know if it would be read or, but I was just going to write it for myself, you know, because I wanted to process all these things, but hopefully help other people. I, I, I read this book by Viktor Frankl. He's a Holocaust, Holocaust survivor and an amazing writer about meaning and purpose of life. And he wrote a book called, um, was it A Search for Man's Meaning, I think is what it's called. How can I forget the name of his book? I think that's what it is. I'm looking for it, but I don't have it right here. But um, uh, Search for Man's Meaning. And, um, and in it, he talks about finding meaning outside ourselves, like in other people, like helping other people. That's how we find our purpose in life, being of service to other people. And that was really inspiring to me. It made a lot of sense. So it helps me to help other people, you know. Yeah, it's nice to sort of get that, though, that feedback and realize what you did had meaning and purpose beyond just you writing it for your for your own grief and, and understanding to really yeah. put it in words, but to actually see the impact it's having on others. And I looked it up. It's man's search for meaning. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think you'll ever forget that now. <laughs> no, well, I hope not, but yes, man's search for meaning. Yeah. And so one of the questions we really like to ask on the podcast is about any dreams you've had of your children yeah. after they died. You know, I, I've had a, a bunch of different dreams. The most vivid one was an early one, and it was a very scary one. I, I talk about it in the book. 
uh, it's like a haunting nightmare. But in the dream, I'm at a Chinese restaurant and I'm looking at the menu and I'm trying to find dishes for both Ruby and Hart, but something's wrong with this restaurant. It's like decayed and, and the window's broken, the door's broken, and I step inside uh, and I can't read the menu. So, you know, and I step inside and I see Hart and he's underneath a table in this like wreck of a restaurant and he's clutching the base of the table and he's terrified. He's terrified and alone. And then I realized in the dream that, that he's dead and that Ruby's dead. And I wait and I woke up. That was like in the first week after the crash or maybe even the first night. I don't even remember. I think very early on. And that was a real, real nightmare that's stuck with me, that image of, of poor heart, you know. And I've had a lot of dreams where I'm talking to one of them and then I, and then in the dream, I remember, oh no, you're dead. That's happened to me a lot. So I'm like, you know, with Ruby, with Hart, and I'm like, wait, something's wrong. Oh, right. Oh, right. You're, you're dead. This isn't real. And I've had a lot of dreams where I'm with one of them grieving the other one. So I'm with Hart and we're both grieving Ruby, or I'm with Ruby and we're both grieving Hart. And then again, in the dream, I remember, oh no, that's right. You're dead too. And I wake up. But I have had a couple of nice dreams, just little flashes where, where we're laughing together. I don't have any specifics of those. <laughs> I guess I didn't wake up in a cold sweat. <laughs> but I, I woke up remembering like, oh, right, I had a nice little moment with Ruby or with Hart, or we're just laughing. And one, they, one of them hugged me in one of the dreams, I remember, and that was nice. But like I said, most of the time, it's, it's tough. It's tough because I remember in the dream that they're gone. Yeah. Wow. That'd be so hard to sort of then wake up and that, that realization again. And again, as you said, even still to this day, it's hard. It is. Yeah. 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 I just, I just, you know, people have asked me like, do you ever just sort of forget for a minute? And I'm like, no, even in my dreams, I remember that they're gone. Like, it's like brutal. I never forget. Not for a millisecond that they're gone. I think that's okay. I don't know if I want to forget, you know. Or part of me wants to. Part of me wants to live in denial, but I don't like that. I don't like denial. I don't like not being in reality. Um, that scares me. So, um, so yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to wake up every morning. And it's hard to go to bed every night. But but I do. And so I'm really actually I'm glad you put that in your book. So what were you trying to showcase with the dream in your book? Well, I think part of it was just. I just wanted to share. I think that I read a bunch of grief books, as I said early on, and and there was I did get a feeling that a lot of them were written like ten years later, you know, and they'd lost someone ten years ago, and they were in a very different place, and they were so sort of confidently uplifting, you know. <laughs> and part of me was like, I don't want to hear that right now. Like, I, of course, I want to hear that it's going to feel better later, but um, but I wanted to sort of someone to honor where I was at. You know, I want, where's the book that just sort of doesn't put on rosy glasses, you know, tells me what's really going on <laughs> and how to get by, how to get through day to day. And so, I think part of that was, was just sharing a specific that impacted me in the hopes that somebody else who, as you said, you know, hadn't heard about other people's dreams and how sometimes how hard it can be to dream about someone who's gone. And I thought maybe that might just help people feel seen. And that was some of the most powerful emails I've gotten from people. The idea that, that they feel seen is so extraordinary in my book. You know, reading my book 
and so someone had lost a sister and wrote that the, it was for the first time they felt seen. And I was like, wow, that's so amazing. So sad that you feel it, but I'm glad you feel seen now through my book. Yeah, that's powerful. And words have power. And how you wrote that and how you shared honestly and truthfully your own pain and your own wisdom, it helped people to feel something new. Mm-hmm. that they weren't alone. And I think that's, that's, that's I guess, that just a director and like your words is like a, a probably so important in, in how your characters and, and how mm-hmm. people say and like the structure of words and, and and just how they say it too. It's just, that's the whole point. That's like, you're good at that. <laughs> and you know, and it's coming through in different ways, not mm-hmm. just comedy or, or silly dances. It's coming through <laughs> now with grief. And it's interesting, like you have these skill sets and life basically forces you to, to, to work on something new and then mm-hmm. you use those skill sets to help that population or that that group and i think this is basically you know what i see here is you had these skills and then life said now i want you to learn about grief and help people in your community yeah. moving forward and it's just like and you did it and so it takes a lot of courage to to go through that pain and to work with it and also to to challenge the people's opinions in front of you to say hey mm-hmm. you know like i know you're feeling this way but you know like read this book <laughs> learn a little bit um so you can also be a better uh, a better uh, member of society for those of all of us who are going to be grieving one one day um, mm-hmm. so i just want to so thank you for that because like courage is a hard thing you know it, it not everyone has it and it's hard to to develop um but you definitely sort of showcase that just within what you're saying today oh thank you i appreciate that and one of the last questions we like to ask is if you could dream of your children today, mm. um, what kind of dream would you want to have? <laughs> wow. Wow. I think I want to have a dream where we're just having a good day together. You know, uh, we loved swimming at the beach and, and the four of us, you know, I, I throw a, a birthday party um, every year for myself at the beach. I invite all these friends of mine and friends of the kids and friends of Gail's and, and we have, it's always been a great day for us. And then as always at some point, the, as a family, the four of us would swim away from everybody else and swim out past the breakers and just be the four of us out, out deep out in the ocean together swimming. And it's always empty there because people don't swim past the breakers very often. <laughs> and uh, it's so beautiful and peaceful once you go past the breakers, if you know how to swim in the ocean, which, which we all did. And it was always so beautiful. And then Ruby would dive down and sneak up and grab us by the feet as if we were sort of shark because she was an amazing swimmer and she could hold her breath really long and she would disappear and we're like, where's Ruby? And then, ah, someone grabbed my foot. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think I'd want to dream of us just having a good time together just to feel that again. See the little, the little faces smiling. Oh, that's beautiful. And would you want them to be the age they would be now or the age when they, when they died? Oh, Wow. Well, that's amazing. The age they are now, that would be wild. <laughs> that would be wild. Uh, Ruby was 17 and Hart was 14. And they were both sort of right on the cusp of, of becoming adults. And I love, we just had dinner with two of Hart's closest friends just uh, two nights ago. We took them out to celebrate graduating high school. And it's so wild to see them because here they are, they're 18 now. Hart's friends are 18. The last time they saw Hart, they were 14. And we've seen them since then, but um, it's very powerful to see his friends growing up and her friends growing up. So I guess I would love to see them as adults. That would be amazing. It's hard to imagine, <laughs> but but um, yeah, that would be neat. Well, it's something I, I see just in the dreams that that come to just the research that, yeah, children do 
uh, age as it would have in some of the dreams. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. Okay. Well, I, I hope you have that. If you do, please let me know. And I'm always interested in hearing people's dreams that they, they have because they're all so unique in many ways. Like I've never seen or heard about one where, you know, the sun's under the table holding Mm. scared, right? Like I've seen themes where it's like that, you know, that they're not dead or you realize that they're dead in the dream. Mm -hmm. And then like this overwhelming sadness happens, but I've also seen some ones where, but then it's okay. Like, you know, they're dead, but it's okay that they're dead. And there's this conversation that happens that's really comforting, mm. which is interesting. And so you sort of see the different, mm. you know, different places people are at in in life. And uh, I'm still trying to learn more about these dreams myself. So I just want to thank you for sharing all that yeah. stuff today. Um, and so where can people find you, your resources? Yeah. So uh, you can find my book in any bookstore or, or online, any bookstore, but uh, you can also find it at colincampbellauthor.com. That's the website the book and it's one Alan Colin. You can also just Google finding the words working through profound loss and with hope and purpose and it'll pop up. I'm also on Instagram at Colin Campbell writer. And that's where so you, sw- <laughs> you switched it up. I did. And so I regret it. <laughs> I was like, why, why did I do that? <laughs> why did I do that? <laughs> just one of those things. Somebody asked you me. You have too many hats. You know, you're an author in one hat and you're a writer in another. It's ridiculous. It's almost the same word. Why did I change it? It would have been so easy to be the same. Some things we just don't understand in life. And this is one of them. Yep. Great mystery. Why I make bad choices. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's right. So once again, thank you so much for just being a part of this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> 